Have you had your soup today? And the cold, crisp taste of Coke is so satisfying, it keeps me from eating something else that might really add those pounds. episode of Sheologian. We are here today to put the she in transmission. Shein. 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 I'm Summer Yeager and I'm here with my beautiful co-host Joy. And Joy, I just want you to know that I, I trust your literary decision skills making, skill making, decision making skills oh. so much that I don't even have to ask you if you prefer the Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings, because I know you'll you know. give the right answer. Mm -hmm. I'm not even going to ask you. Don't even. You don't even have to. No. Everyone knows the answer. Gone with the wind. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that is. Yeah, Twilight. People will say things. People will ask me about books and then I get insecure because I've read a lot of books, but, what but you I get weirdly insecure because I'm like, which think of all the books you've read. <laughs> Think of all of them. <laughs> yeah. You know, actually, I do that, too. When people ask me, like, well, what's your favorite book? I, my mind goes blank. And then I think of Gone with the Wind or Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> so mine is worse. I think of a book that I read once when I was 12 that I couldn't tell you the plot of, but I can remember the cover very clearly. And uh -huh. it's called The Wanderer. And now that I'm thinking about it and I own the book. So I don't know why I've never just like walked over right. to it and looked at it and been like, oh, that's what this is about. Um, I don't remember anything, but then it's the book I think of saying, even though I could not tell you what it's about at all. It's weird. It's like your brain, mm -hmm. it's, there's too, your brain has too much information yeah. on the topic. So yeah. it just like produces something just... for you in a simplified <laughs> form. And you're like... Okay. Throw something out. It's <laughs> called The Wanderer by Sharon Creech. And I don't, oh, okay. couldn't tell you anything about it. But if you ask me what my favorite book is. I'm thinking of something else by Sharon Creech. Did is she it write Walk a Two Moons? Yes. She wrote a book called Walk Two Moons. Yeah. I've never read that. Yeah. I, I read that. Did could not tell you a thing about either of these books. <laughs> but if you ask me what my favorite book well, is. Well, like I just can't. You said the author's name and I was Sharon able Creech. to. I was able to think what of another this? book that she had written. What is But this? if you asked me what my favorite yeah. Sharon Creech book was, yeah. I'd be like, I don't know. <laughs> Gone with the Wind. Pride and Prejudice? Pride and Prejudice. The Giver? Oh, sorry, everybody. The Giver. <laughs> yes. There we go. I mean, anyway. Um, but you're right. Yeah. I am Joy. <laughs> there you are. And um, I'm here with my beautiful co-host, Summer. And Summer, I just want you to know that I know you aren't completely inerrant, mm. but grammatically, you're doing a really good job. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. I do my best. Uh, I'm actually, so I've been writing those reviews mm -hmm. of that book yeah and um i just like i just type it all out so fast and i i just want to be like by the time i'm done typing something that length i just want to be done but i know i need to like have somebody else read it and edit it or right you know see i have i know that i have good spelling and grammar 
Mm-hmm. Um, but it's all very instinctive. Right. From things that I learned. Right. But from reading a lot. Right. And things like that, you know. So then I, again, get insecure. What is this weird... <laughs> insecurity insecurity that i continue maybe, to confess maybe we should have an episode on that maybe we, we already did did we i don't know i don't know what we talk we'll about do it again. what do we talk about on I'm obviously show? it didn't work so we need to do it again <laughs> that episode did not work i didn't learn anything when i prepared for it apparently so do it again maybe i'm just insecure about that right right um so yeah, I I'll like send it. I normally have my husband read it and he'll catch like for some reason I'm typing a sentence and I just didn't put the word the in it or something. Yeah. Like you just or you skip a preposition because mm-hmm. you're just like typing and because you, you know in your brain what you're trying to that say. That it's supposed to be there, right? And so actually one of the biggest things that help, helps me is reading it out loud. If you read something written yeah. out loud, then you like catch the missing these and ends and like right. weird things that you do and so yeah, anyway, now everybody that's this is boring. No one cares. Hi. I, I heard from someone that if you are not a good speller, you should read what you wrote backwards. What? Because your brain will automatically oh, like gloss it. over the spelling. Yeah. That makes um, sense. But if you read it if you read not like the whole word backwards. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> you know what? I cannot say the alphabet backwards. Like, can people just do that? I am so annoyed that that's like a thing. I think I might be able to do that. I cannot. I can't do it. Let's hear you do it. But I kind of don't want to now. Because <laughs> now you're insecure. I just confessed all these insecurities. <laughs> well, I, I used to get nervous, like, because, you know, they, when I feel like when videos started getting, like, popular, like, when YouTube became a thing... There would be like videos of these people getting pulled over and then the cops would ask them to say the alphabet backwards to prove that they weren't oh, yeah. drunk. Mm-hmm. And it made me so nervous because I was like, I'm not going to be drunk if I get pulled over, but I am also not going to be able to say <laughs> to the say alphabet backwards. backwards. Right. So what am I going to do? <laughs> I want to know the study. Like, how did they put that what test happened? into play? Right. Who was like, okay, what is the one thing <laughs> right. that a drunk person cannot do? Right. Right. Say the alphabet backwards. You know, what's funny about that too is that. What yeah. about pr- pass a breathalyzer test? Right. I can. Do, I, think I that can do works that just as well. I, I would just be like, give me, <laughs> give me the breathalyzer, please, because I'm not going to be able to tell you this. But it's funny that you we brought that up because yesterday in the car, Clementine was like, oh, I know so and so's phone number, and she says the phone number, and then my husband goes, yeah, but can you say it backwards? And she just busts it out. She was like, it's da 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 and said it backwards perfectly. And we both just looked at each other like, uh, uh, oh, okay. I thought you were going to say, uh, true to her mother's form, like, why would I need to know it backwards? <laughs> no, she that, just did it. It wouldn't be the phone number anymore. She just did it. It wouldn't be the right phone number. <laughs> why would I need to know that? Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, no, it was really, I... I can't do that with any fans. I might be able to do that with like 911, but I'm pretty sure that's like the only number I can do that with. The only number that is not seven (laughs) numbers long. The one. It's the one. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's it's sad, but true. There's your Metallica reference for the day. All right. Um, (laughs) So anyway. Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, 
No, serious. I can be serious. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, we discussed the doctrine of inerrancy. And in that discussion, there's so many other really fascinating topics just concerned with the text of scripture, why we believe we have the word of God. Um, and, you know, my dad's a textual critic. Right. Like, I think it's fascinating yeah um and have been around it a lot and exposed to it a lot and so i went off to college and um immediately had to deal with these issues because you go to any university today and you will just see how much they want to destroy any kind of idea that our young people might have that the bible that we have today is what was originally written Obviously, they don't theologically <laughs> want uh, to believe that some there's a book that out there that's been supernaturally held together over time. Um, these are terrifying things if you are uh, in rebellion to God to think that, no, here's a book and it is his word and it is true and you are held right. <laughs> responsible right. for it. Um, so it makes a lot of sense that an unbelieving world would want to make sure that our children also do not believe. Um, And so just, I, I, you know, 19 years old, I walk into this university classroom and I have this professor and he's like, I have him literally in my face pounding on my desk within like 10 minutes of our first class because he was trying to tell the class, he's a philosophy professor and I don't remember what the context was, but he was trying to tell the class, like, um, he was talking about the gospels and how, when they were originally written in Hebrew, Oh, which mm-hmm. is when, you know, annoying 19 year old me <laughs> raised my hand. Well, you just rightfully <laughs> couldn't let that go. I couldn't let that go because he's just talking about how like translating it into English from Hebrew and all this stuff. And I was just like, <clears throat> um, the Gospels weren't written in Hebrew. They were written in Greek. Mm-hmm. And he start he and I have this back and forth and he ends up getting in my face and getting really aggressive. And it was this big, huge thing because whatever, I thought he was going to fail me. Da, 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 da. Anyway, <laughs> all of that to say, <laughs> we do believe that the scriptures that we have today are what was originally written. They are the words of God. And there are so many fields of study that you can go into to discuss that. And so if you clicked on this episode, you already know that we have a very special guest today. We brought him here, asked him to join us because this is, you know, his field of study. If you are in the reformed world or even just the evangelical world at large, um, and you want to study the canon and how we got it, this is for sure the guy that you want to talk to. So, Dr. Kruger, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you please, for our guests, just give us a little bit of an intro for the people who don't know who you are and tell us what you do? Yeah, well, thanks. Glad to be with you both on the show. Um, yeah, I am president of uh, Reform Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, and also New Testament professor here, so I wear multiple hats, uh, was faculty first and then eventually took on this role as president, so now I sort of moved back and forth between those uh, two responsibilities. Oh, no big deal. <laughs> right? No big deal. Light load, man. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, I'm kind of realizing now how that, that phrase, 
many hat like I wear many hats is uh-huh. really yeah. tends to be an understatement, <laughs> like a very <laughs> understated way of saying, oh, I do so many huge time consuming <laughs> things. Yeah. yeah, I try not to think about it too much. I may just quit one of them. So. Right, right, of right. Them, for that matter. Yeah, right. Just do the next thing, as Elizabeth <laughs> Elliot says. Um, so we wanted to talk to you today about kind of one of clearly, if you. Um, if you look up Dr. Kruger, if you listen to his lectures and see the stuff that you've written about, something that you are clearly passionate about is the canon of scripture. Um, tell us, I, I'm really curious, so this is this is a question more for me than anybody else. What first got you wanting to research and study and learn about the canon? Yeah, well, actually it was sort of forced on me. Um, so many know the story, but I was an undergraduate at UNC Chapel Hill as a student and found myself in a New Testament introduction class and really had no idea what I was getting into. I was a committed Christian and a Bible-believing Christian, grew up in a Christian home. Never really reflected on the Bible's origins, historicity, reliability, or anything. Just believed it as God's Word, and I had a professor there named Bart Ehrman who uh, mm. challenged me and, any, and many other students to rethink what we thought about these books. And so uh, if you know anything about Dr. Herman's writings, which I'm sure you do, one of his big things is not only textual transmission, but canon questions, why these books, not others, um, the, the question of uh, you know, apocryphal literature and so on. So all those things are, are heavily in the, in the field of Christian origins. And so for me, I got into the subject out of near survival. <laughs> it was more designed to be, okay, what, do I really believe this? Do what is what I believe really true, and I, I needed to get to the bottom of that. And once I sort of found myself getting to the bottom of that and, and getting some good answers to my questions, I found myself fascinated with it and really uh, wanted to pursue it further. And that started me on, on the long journey to where I am today. I actually did not know that you were a student of Bart Ehrman. That is I fascinating. I didn't know that either. Wow. Okay. No big deal. <laughs> Again, no big deal. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you started researching this and you came away believing that we have the canon and the scriptures that God meant us to have, yes? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, there's a lot of tough questions that that class raised, and um, certainly when you're 19 years old or whatever it was, you know, you don't, you're not going to get all the answers. What I began to realize, though, is that there were answers, even if I didn't have them, mm-hmm. and that anybody who wanted to commit themselves to studying the history of the canon could get some of those answers. And, and what I've learned over the long haul, not only then, but certainly in my own research and, and doctoral work and and uh, different types of things I've done since then. I mean, the core takeaway I've learned about that, the development of the canon is, is, is that it's, it's a, it was a lot, there was a lot more unity around books in the early centuries of the church than people realize. Um, if you just listen to the critics out there, you'll get the sense that things were sort of utterly chaotic until the fourth or fifth century, that no one knew what to read, that there was massive disagreement, um, that everybody had their own canon and their own collection of books, and no one got along, and so on. And then it wasn't until, say, a church council came along and sort of fixed it all. And, and uh, you know, particularly that's usually put under, the, under the, the heading of Constantine, who sort of forced his own books on the church, and there you have it. Mm. That, that, that whole narrative is, is, is commonplace and widespread, but the evidence doesn't bear it out. In fact, historically, when you start looking into the details, you realize, wait a second, you know, even though, yes, it did take some time for the dust to settle on some of these peripheral books, some of these smaller books, the core books were in place quite early. Certainly by the second century, you look like you have about 21, maybe 22 out of the 27 already well established. And that's a very different story than what people typically hear. Right. And the modern argument is that the the books that we have now are kind of the, the books of the the winners, the the theological 
people that won the day, essentially. Is that right? That's right. And that, that idea goes back to a, a German scholar by the name of Walter Bauer. And Bauer's idea was that, that the early Christianity was, was very diverse theologically, and it was very, pretty much a theological battleground for who, who would end up uh, claiming the title genuine original Christianity. And everybody said they were the original Christians, but who knows which ones were. And he says that the books we have in our canons are just the books of the, as you put it, the theological winners, the ones who prevailed and supposedly were to believe that they won the day, they picked the canon and then suppressed every other canon and every other group out there until uh, those groups were long forgotten. And so what, what that does is it makes modern scholars look like liberators. You know, they, they come in and they're, 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 they're throwing off the shackles of these oppressive uh, you know, orthodox folks to, to free up and, and, and liberate the, those poor heretics that were oppressed in early Christianity. And it makes for a great narrative, but, but again, that's just not the evidence we have. The evidence isn't that it, was, it, was, it, it worked like that at all. Uh, in fact, um, like I said, it seems like we have a core collection of books that, that most Christians were agreed about on a very early time period. Right. So you're saying that from a historical viewpoint, we can reject that, that modern argument if you really look at the facts. But what would you say from a theological standpoint, how could we reject that from a, a theological viewpoint? Well, there's a couple ways to do it. Um, uh, you know, if you, if you ask the theological question of the type of diversity in early Christianity, there certainly were what we would call heretical groups. There's no doubt about it. Groups that you see as divergent or contrary to the apostolic teaching. But you don't need to study the second century to see that. We even see that in the New Testament documents themselves. Even they give indications that as, as early as the letters of Paul, that there were already groups that were, were, were divergent and that were trying to fight against the, the apostolic witness. And so the idea that the existence of, of, of heresies means that truth's up for grabs simply doesn't work. You can have opposition, you can have false teaching, and also know what's true. And I think there's the philosophical underpinnings of the whole thing, is that most, most liberal critics will say, hey, if there's disagreement, then, then, then you can never know what's true, or if there's disagreement, that there can't be truth. But that's a philosophical commitment, and that has to be defended. It can't just be declared. And what's going on in the university systems today is that people assume that if there's a disagreement, if there's diversity, that no one can claim to have the right view, or that you could never know which view's right, and there's never any sense that one of you could be right. But all of that is a, is a philosophical uh, commitment, not a historical one, and certainly not one that I think can be defended when you start digging down into the roots of it. Right. Um, this is hopefully, so hopefully this doesn't backtrack too <laughs> much. Um, but I want to give our listeners sort of an idea on what we mean by transmission. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've talked about, um, like historically the transmission, mm -hmm. uh, of the text, uh, the preservation of the text, um, how, so, but I guess maybe I'm trying to think of how I want to ask this question. Um, I think maybe people have just, uh, a misunderstanding about how the text was written to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, and I was wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit about like mechanical inspiration mm -hmm. and why that's not mm -hmm. what we were looking at. And maybe maybe that will help people sort of think about how we can determine um, uh, which is actually like which of these books were inspired and which mm -hmm. weren't necessarily. 
Yeah, if you're if you're asking sort of the mechanics of of the way an author wrote when they were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. that's the, the the question you're asking. Then, then there's there's a lot that can be said on that. There there are ideas out there historically and even in the modern day of more what we would call mechanical theories of inspiration, which suggests that authors almost go into some sort of trance, if you will, right. um, and, and they're they're getting downloaded by the Spirit, but their own consciousness, their own awareness, their own education, their own language is completely absent from the scenario, and it's sort of, they're, they're merely a, a, a tool in God's hands to write the words he's writing. Um, that, that idea, though, of inspiration is just not what we find either in Scripture or in the history of, of, of Christian theology. Um, what, what, what we would argue for is more of an organic uh, view of inspiration, and what that means is that the Holy Spirit is providentially over the entire process, which includes a person's own personality, their their own education, their own background, their own vocabulary, and and by the, the mysterious providence of God, weaves that all together in such a way that a person can write a book and have it be the words that God wants him to write without having to resort back to some mechanical inspiration idea. And this is why when you read books in the New Testament, you, you actually sense the author's personality. I mean, mm-hmm. Paul sounds different than, than, than Peter. Mm-hmm. Peter sounds different than James. Um, mm-hmm. they, they, they have their own vocabulary, their own education, their own personalities that shine through. And at the same time, and this is the key, of course, all of it falls under the heading of, of being the inspired Word of God. Only a, only a sovereign God could pull that off, a God that's providentially over people's whole lives. Right. Um, and, and this is why we would argue that, that inspiration is a doctrine that you, you've got to believe in the sovereignty of God to hold. Right. Right. I think a low view of God and inspiration just won't work. Yeah. That's, that's, I think where the hang up is typically, mm. um, people, obviously they think they have historical and theological reasoning mm-hmm. behind why they think that the, the, the transmission of the text and the preservation of the text didn't happen perfectly um but it really is it does point back more to the sovereignty of god and how much and a faith basically it's a faith more of a faith issue um yeah i mean fundamentally fundamentally we, we believe that, that that there's supernatural activity there right. um and, and certainly for someone who's an anti-supernaturalist the idea of an inspired book is a non-starter right um, it doesn't even really matter what the historical evidence is they won't grant it regardless because they already rule out the supernatural Right. right. So you realize that worldviews play a big role in how you how you sift the historical facts. They're, 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 the worldviews play a big role in, in terms of what you're willing to accept as even a possibility. Right. Um, some people will never accept inspiration just just by from from the very get go. Right. So, I mean, obviously, we agree that the text is the inspired word by God, is breathe, breathed out by God, um, and errant. We believe that it's infallible. But even from a historical standpoint, I think we would be, from from a textual critical standpoint, we would be ready to argue that it's not ridiculous to believe the text that was written in that first century is what we have today is still what was written then. Like, uh, you know, obviously we are part of the English speaking world right. and it was not written in English. Um, but why why do you trust that that transmission is is still it's valuable that what we have today is what they wrote then yeah that's a that's a very common question and a very important one uh when when someone reads let's say the gospel of luke and the words we have in our bibles now they're thinking well okay this is called luke but is this what luke wrote and i don't know some scribe didn't change it between here and there And those are really important questions and, and like you said you don't have to believe in supernatural things to answer that question we, we have ways to get to the bottom of that question that anybody 
can see. Um, and this brings up the whole field of, of textual criticism. And mm-hmm. I think the Bible has, has excellent textual credentials. In fact, not just excellent textual credentials, arguably uh, the best textual credentials of any book of antiquity, mm-hmm. which is yeah. really a remarkable thing to realize. Mm-hmm. So there's several steps to understanding why we would think the, the Bible, and particularly in this case, the New Testament has been transmitted reliably. One, one of the questions we'd ask is, do we have any reason to think that the text has been lost, or the portions of the text have been lost? Do we, do we have it all? And mm-hmm. this, is, this is why we, we, we point to the fact that we have so many different copies of the New Testament to appeal to, so many different manuscripts. And this is one of the things that sets the New Testament apart. We have approximately, and the numbers are, are always changing, about 5,700 uh, manuscripts of the New Testament today. Uh, that number continues to go up. That is, a, that is a mind-boggling number when you compare it to other books of antiquity. And that number matters for lots of reasons, but one of the main reasons it matters is because in that vast storehouse of manuscripts, we can have confidence that the, 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 the original text has been preserved within it. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily within any particular copy, but within the collective storehouse that they represent. And that, that, that's the first step. Do, do we think the text has been lost? And the answer is, is, is no. We, these, these manuscripts really give us a sense that the text has been preserved for generation. And the, and the other thing I would point out is just that we can see the faithfulness of the copying over time. We mm-hmm. can compare early manuscripts and late manuscripts and, and see whether they've changed. And a good example of this is, is an early copy of John we have called P66. I actually take my students through this. We actually read the prologue of John from P66, which is dated to the late second, maybe early third century. And, um, and my students every year say the same thing. They're like, wow, the prologue here is exactly like the prologue now. Right. And I'm like, yeah, that's kind of the whole point. And right. You can see that, the, that those things have not changed. Right. So um, why shouldn't, I think when I, you know, when I went to college, one of the very first um, philosophy professors I ever had um, spent a great a deal of time and enjoyed very much attacking um, this, this, the veracity of the text based on the, the fact that there are so many textual variants um, why, so when, when our, when our children go off to college and they face that, um, why shouldn't they be afraid of the amount of textual variance that we do find in the text? Yeah, well, this is uh, a common tactic, uh, amongst critical scholars is to sort of use statistics to sort of scare people. They'll say things such as the New Testament has 200, 300, 400,000 textual variations within it, mm-hmm. uh, which is a stunning number. I mean, much more, we think about that number, you're thinking, well, that, that's more than even the words of the New Testament. So I have, I have more variations in words in the New Testament, and people go into a bit of a panic. The problem is, is that that number is, is very uh, uh, misleading if someone doesn't have more information about how that number came to be. Um, let's assume the number is right for a moment, um, and I think it actually might be. We, we don't know exactly how many textual variations there are. What, what people don't realize is the vast, vast majority of those textual variations have nothing to do with, with changing the meaning of the text. In other words, they don't affect the meaning of the text at all. Um, most of those are minor scribal slips that don't make any difference whatsoever. And a good example of this is that the vast majority of those scribal changes are spelling errors, spelling differences. Right. Um, orthographic differences within the text. Um, and, and those make up the vast majority of those. And so when you think about that kind of number, you're like, well, do I read a modern book and find a spelling mistake and think, therefore, it needs to be, you know, chucked in the trash can as irrelevant <laughs> right. or possible? Well, to understand? Le- well, of course not. Yeah. You know? And so what you realize is that any of the meaningful textual variations are so few in number that they they don't meaningfully affect the, the, the scope of the, of the New Testament message. And so 
for someone to say that all these variations make the text unknowable is is a hyper skeptic approach. It's just not borne out by the facts. Right. Right. Well, even like and nor said, is it. Sorry, and nor no, is it applied okay. equally to other other documents of antiquity. No one takes that same type of skepticism and applies it to other texts right. outside the Bible. Right. Right. Well, and even like you said, just the amount of original texts that we have right. is going to make variations even go more. Up. Yes. <laughs> so just like statistically, right, they can get that number right. just because there is more correct text correct. to get it from. So it's, it yeah. seems so scary the at the outset. You have, the mm -hmm. more copies you have, the more opportunities you have to discover new scribal variations. Absolutely. And so one of the reasons that we have so many scribal variations in the New Testament is because we have so many copies of the New Testament. Which, which is an irony because the more copies, the better. So right. it's almost like we're, you can't win. You know, you, <laughs> you're a victim of your own success at that point. Right. Well, and it sounds as though people are taking, are using that to their advantage. They're giving you this big scary number, but they're not actually asking you to think critically about that number. Right. Absolutely. Right. Um, I was just, I, I guess my last question is, uh, how can we? So we we recently did an episode about the inerrancy of the scripture. Um, so, so how, this is, this is very basic, but how did God do all this? Humans wrote it. Humans have, have um, been used mm -hmm. to, to preserve it mm -hmm. and continue it. So how, how can we trust it if it's been all through humans? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a classic type of question that people raise on the skeptical side. They say, look, you know, if it's a human document, by definition, it has mistakes. And if it's a human document that's being transmitted, it's going to have errors. Therefore, you know, you can call it whatever you want. But at the end of the day, it's going to be, you know, merely human and, and filled with errors. Mm -hmm. But but notice in the objection is already the ruling out of, of supernatural activity. It's almost like saying, given that there's no supernatural activity, given that there's no miracles, given that God's not involved, right. all we have is a human document. But of course, that's precisely not the Christian argument, nor is it the Christian view. The Christian view is that this didn't all just happen on human terms or merely on a human level, but that God superseded the entire process. Now, the skeptic will scoff at that and say, well, I don't believe that. But that, that doesn't matter whether he believes it. The question is, is the Christian position internally coherent? Does it make sense why we believe what we believe? If we merely believed it was human documents, of course we wouldn't say they're inspired, because we'd, they'd just be chock full of mistakes. But we're, we're not arguing that. We're arguing that we think that God was involved here. So that's an entirely coherent argument to make. Um, and then we would, we would tack on top of that that we, we can see that backed up by the evidence. We see very faithful scribal transmission over time. We think that that falls also under the providence of God, that God has made sure that his word is preserved faithfully. Um, effectively so that his so that his message is not lost over the generations and you can see that that's taken place right absolutely all right mm -hmm. last question and it's very important which is better chronicles of narnia or lord of the rings <laughs> i didn't even know she was gonna ask this question that might just be the most important question to ask. <laughs> um, so uh actually i get questions like this from time to time on podcasts which is kind of funny maybe that's the new trend now um well for me it's a slam dunk uh on uh in my mind and that is lord of the rings yes the, okay the oh there. you are um, absolutely so correct that's not the disparage narnia because i really love it and uh -huh. I think it's fantastic. Yes. I just think they're two very different kinds of writings. Yes. Um, I think Narnia is, is clearly an allegory and clearly a children's book. Mm -hmm. Lord of the Rings is clearly not an allegory and not a children's book. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, 
arguably Hob- the Hobbit was arguably a children's book, but not the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I, I I just find myself gravitating to the latter if I have to choose between them. But I think they're both both wonderful. Yeah, my husband and my father were right about you. You are very smart. <laughs> Um, I didn't even know she was going to ask that question, but I knew the right answer when she asked it. Well, there'll be people who think that's the wrong answer. I know. But they're wrong because you heard it here from Dr. Kruger. Right. Um, Dr. Kruger, tell our listeners, um, what would you tell them, first of all, what you have written on the subject if they want to find it out? And what are some of the the further kind of um, options for study if they want to learn more about this topic that you recommend? Yeah, well, the best place to go for all that actually, and I'm not suggesting it's the only place to go, but but a good start if they want to know more about what I've written in, on this area is just to go to my website. Mm-hmm. So my website is called Cannon Fodder, and that's Cannon with one N because it's a pun. Right. Mm-hmm. I love pun- Clearly, we um, love puns yes, over here at Geologians. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, and uh, so they, they can find Cannon Fodder by looking it up, assuming they use one N in Cannon, or they can just type <laughs> in my name, michaeljkruger.com. And they'll find my website. On there is a list of all my publications on canon, textual criticism, and so on. Articles I've written. I've posted a lot of my academic articles up there, but also a number of all my blog articles are cataloged. And my blog mm-hmm. material is all designed to get this sort of content into people's hands at a more lay level. Yeah. So there's a lot there for yes. people to explore. And I've got some links on there to other great websites as well. And so there's a lot out there. Mm-hmm. A lot of other great websites, certainly beside mine, so I want to make that clear. But if they're looking to know more about my books, that's probably the best place to go. Excellent. Well, we praise God over here for the work that you're doing over there. Um, it's just it's been really beneficial for me, and we are seriously so thankful that you took your time to talk to us today. So thank you so much. Thanks. Look forward to being on again. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks. We'll talk to you Alrighty. later. See ya. Take care. <laughs> Bye. Well, that was awesome. Yes, agreed. Uh, I know that, um, I mean, that Dr. Kruger is, I I was originally going to have my dad on to talk about this because he actually has, um, he, he does textual critical studies and he has some good stuff I want to point you guys to, but I'll for sure leave the link to Cannon Fodder on the episode show notes page so you guys can read more if you want. And I just hope that you guys are encouraged by this discussion and, and if you want to know more that you we'll go put the work in and learn it and be ready. And if you're sending kids off to college that you'll be ready for these discussions or if you're going off to college or if you're at college or um, whatever. Well, and I think something that he said is really important. There are answers. You just might not have access to them yet. Right. Um, Right. And that's, I mean, even just in the context of sending your kids off to college or sending your kids somewhere. Right. Um, that I think is a good thing to right. we we won't yeah know all the answers in this right. lifetime unless I mean not all of us will be scholars and that's okay <laughs> right um yes that's okay you can be a scholar if you want to be one <laughs> sure um but yeah it, I think the the important approach to take to this is you may not have all the answers but you can get you can them get them if and you want find them, them. Yeah. And I think, too, um, a lot of times just this topic can be scary for people like the unknown is scary. And I think the scariest thing about it is the objections. What do you mean? The the objection. Like, I feel like this is a thing that people like if it came up in a conversation with someone who was objecting, mm-hmm. they feel like they wouldn't be able to give an answer because that person would just have an objection. Right. 
to their answer, but all of this, mm-hmm. he like another important thing that mm-hmm. he, that uh, he was talking about was just that um, this is all consistent within the Christian worldview. Right. If you continue to return to the Bible as your foundation, then this makes sense. So they right. may not like it. The person that you're talking to may not right. like your response, but right, it's consistent. Right with what you said you believe you're not doing anything out of left field right <laughs> right yes <laughs> don't forget that you're not doing anything out of left field <laughs> i don't know why that was so funny to me but it's it's like true. they'll it's be true. like you're ridiculous but you're not <laughs> historically you're not ridiculous for right. saying right. that god is sovereign over the transmission and preservation of the text right you're not they don't right. like it right <laughs> and i think most evangelicals today too like you most Christian most people sitting in the pews will say like yes the Bible is the word of God like most people will just who are Christians will say that and believe that but then it's like you get confronted with these issues and you're like oh I've never thought I've just believed which in one sense is fine but in the sense where we need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us and like these are the things that we need to be thinking through oh yeah so Anyway, hey guys, um, that's it for this week. You can uh, hit us up at patreon.com slash sheologians to keep the mics on. And uh, we've got some Patreon-only content up there. And I'm still uh, loving your voicemails. We love them. Just know, like, there might be a chance that we play some of it on air. Like, I just want to give that warning right now. So if you call our voicemail number, which is... 404-465-0475. I almost said my phone number. Is it 404? Four, yeah, sure. Four, isn't there a seven in 470? there? 470? 470. <laughs> 470. I was like, I feel like 404 is on our Facebook page. So just, yeah. You can always find it. 470-465-0475. This is not one of those inerrant moments that I was talking about. <laughs> anyway, um you guys (laughs) but i don't even know it so i know the zip code or the area code sorry bye